Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, we are also live casting over on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. Uh, as always, here on uh, uh, the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Over here on page one uh, today, I'm uh, very pleased to have Stephen Nill, uh, the publisher at Charity Channel Press. Uh, who has uh, decided that he wants to come on the show today and do us a great favor, and that is actually introduce us uh, to our book that's going to be uh, discussed today and our author, who will be our guest expert today. Welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach, Stephen Nill. Hello, Ted. Thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure and a privilege uh, to uh, have the opportunity to be on the show and to introduce Somebody that I've gotten to know um, in the in the last year or so, um, an author who has just published a book, which we're going to be getting into quite a bit with her. Um, her name is Lynn Malzone Iardi, and Lynn is a, is a someone that I could really relate to because, like me, um, she has a law background. In her case, she has uh, her Juris Doctor from Fordham University School of Law, practiced for a while, um, consulted for results, and, um, is, and has uh, served as Director of Gift Planning for the University of Pennsylvania since 2005. And so it's interesting because Lynn is obviously, um, with her background, an, an, an expert in the technical minutiae of charitable gift planning. Um, I can relate to that because that's, that's my background also. And I think it, we tend to think about somebody with Lynn's background as the person who you go to to structure a gift and, and make things happen. And I'm sure, without actually having asked Lynn, I'm, I'm positive that that's um, a, a big part of her role. But in the years that she's been doing this work, um, she has gained an expertise in something that um, is, I think, as probably more important than figuring out how to put together a split interest charitable trust and all of that stuff. And that is sort of the question of why should the gift be made and to do it in a way that's compelling, interesting, and fruitful, um, and 
helps the donor realize a philanthropic dimension. And that is, quite frankly, very simply, storytelling. Um, we all know that humans are wired to appreciate and enjoy stories and to learn from them. And in, it hasn't been that long since this, this idea of storytelling has emerged in the nonprofit sector as something we really need to hone in on to get better and better at. And so when Lynn was introduced to me by another author who you've had on your show, um, and she proposed a book on storytelling, and I learned about her background, I got super excited because it reminded me of when I first discovered the power of storytelling back in the early 90s when I was brought in as a as a senior vice president for a hospital chain that was about to lose its trauma center. And there were only three in Southern California. And if any one of the three had gone down, the, the whole region would have suffered. Um, people would probably have died. So it wasn't, it wasn't a simple thing. And I was tasked with trying to turn that around in a very short order because, frankly, the finances just weren't there to keep it going much longer. And without realizing it, it realized without realizing the importance of it, I simply saw how vital it was, and I cr began to create a story around the trauma center. And I took that story out everywhere I could to meetings and, and conferences, and I organized events. And, I, and the story was always consistent that if if we don't save the trauma center, where are your loved ones going to go if they were to get into an accident or have a center and that story became very effective and we actually saved the trauma center that was storytelling and so when I met Lynn and she wanted to write about storytelling although I didn't share that story with her right away I shared it with her later and by the way Lynn thank you for putting it in your book she liked the story and put it in her book um, uh, I realized this is a book I would love to publish as a public and um, she has done just an amazing job. It's a very fun book to read. Um, on the cover is a picture of a wooden spoon with um, some uh, tomato sauce, probably from a spaghetti recipe or something like that. Lynn, by the way, is Italian, so it's a perfect fit for her. Um, yeah, and, and if you're from a, an Italian background, it's going to be gravy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so Lynn... Um, you know, has a very special story of her own to share um, about what what motivated her to uh, to write the book in, uh, in particular and uh, the date that the book uh, came out. Lynn, um, I'm sure Lynn would be happy to share that story with you, Ted. I don't want to steal her thunder on that. Well, I think Back you've done you. a wonderful job introducing us uh, both to Lynn and to the book, and so. Uh, uh, with uh, your permission, we're going to head right on over to page two and start the discussion with our guest expert today. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach uh, Podcast, Lynn Melzone, IRRD. Uh, Lynn, it's great to have you here. I'm quite excited uh, about your book and about this topic. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Lynn, I, I have to say when I, you know, when, when I was, our producer, Diane Peach, uh, first presented this as a, as a topic to me uh, and started, you know, looking for a date to, uh, to get you on onto the show, and I, and I saw the the, you know the title to to your book that uh, the Steve you know just uh, just shared with uh, everybody storytelling the the subtitle really grabbed my my attention the secret sauce of fundraising success and and, and I immediately thought well yeah okay storytelling I I get it but not until you read the book do you really get it and there there are a couple of sayings that I wanted to sort of kick off with. Um, as, as backdrop, and then I, then I want you to sort of uh, get us into this book. They, you know, they say that, that uh, uh, cooking with love provides food for the soul. 
And and when I when I see your your book being the secret sauce, of course, you know I immediately think of uh, think of food. Um, but then there's another saying that that I thought uh, maybe uh, it's a Mexican proverb that conversation is food for the soul. Um, so is is that where we're going here? That the storytelling um, is is good for the soul. In some sense, I think that's accurate. I, I do, Ted, because I think, um, and that's why I use the food theme, because I really see a good story that you can enjoy as uh, analogous to enjoying a meal. And there are scientific evidence that shows that the body physically responds to a good story in much the same way that we respond to a good meal. You know, the neurons oh, and well, parts of our brain that. light up. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's, that's interesting. So, there, so there's a, a scientific underpinning to your, to your book. Absolutely. Now, in your book, in the, the chapters of your book that, that we do want to explore today, this is not just a, a subtitle to, uh, to your book. The, the chapters of your book talk about recipes. It talks about shopping for ingredients. It talks about serving the entree. Um, it talks even about the side dishes uh, and even kitchen mishaps. So, so this theme is, is uh, and then, of course, we get to dessert, uh, which, it, which are the sweet success stories, which is wonderful. But this is a theme that isn't just on the cover. This isn't just, you know, backdrop to, you know, a clever uh, photo on, on, on the front. But this, this is something that is, is deeply embedded in your thinking about storytelling. So if you would, start, start off by introducing us to, you know, why is, is a person who is so well-known and so well-versed in charitable gift planning, uh, who was elected chair of the board of the National Association of Charitable Gift Planners um, after having served as their treasurer and their chair-elect, uh, is a member of the CGP Leadership Institute. I mean, these are, and, and as, as uh, Steve mentioned, serving as director of gift planning for the University of Pennsylvania. These are big deals. I mean, your 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 uh, resume, your pedigree in the area of uh, charitable gift planning uh, is very deep and very impressive. So, why is it that someone with your background um, has a a a book to tell about storytelling? I think it's because of how strongly I believe that while gift planning and the technical expertise is important, I think the heart of fundraising and being a good fundraiser, an effective fundraiser, is much more about the people skills and the soft skills, if you will, um, than it is about the technical skills. And I think too often, especially with gift planning, Fundraisers are intimidated or they hesitate to talk about gift planning, thinking that they don't have the technical expertise and they don't want to go there. And I think if we, you know, wind it back down and look at the essential skills of a good fundraiser, it's all about storytelling. And gift yes. planning is something that I use storytelling all the time to be effective. If I'm talking about a technical gift and how it works, and I'm explaining it either to a donor or to a fundraiser without expertise in gift planning, if I can explain it in a story, it makes it so much, e it's so much easier to understand, to repeat, to explain it to somebody else, and donors are more likely to say, yes, I'm interested in doing it and I, that way, and I can make a gift that way, if I can explain it using a story. Is storytelling mostly uh, successful in making the complicated approachable, um, or are there, is there another reason for storytelling to be part of your toolkit? I think there are many reasons for storytelling to be a part of your toolkit. I think explaining the technical is just one small part of it, and actually I had my gift planning hat on when I first started to think about this book. 
uh, but it was in conversation with Steve as my publisher that we realized how much broader, how much bigger this topic is and how it applies because of the importance of storytelling and that that is the most effective and persuasive way to communicate. And it's the way that we connect with each other. And I think businesses clearly understand this. It's a hot topic in the business world. But I don't think that nonprofits are there yet. Some are. Some are doing really well with storytelling. But too many nonprofits don't use storytelling effectively yet, and we should be. Mm -hmm. I, I often quip that, you know, planned giving or, or gift planning uh, is one of those things that the average fundraiser is certain they're going to get a planned gift as soon as they go to one more seminar or as, as soon as they go to one more conference. But they're never quite ready because of the technical nature of it. And I, and I often try to help, uh, you know, uh, less senior uh, fundraisers or people that are not as skilled in planned giving, certainly as you are, um, to understand that you don't have to be an expert uh, in uh, the actual technical aspects of uh, planned giving, which the tax code can make things quite complicated. What you have to do is get a working knowledge of what the possible is, what the possible outcome can be. And that's often best told in a story, is it not? Absolutely. It's, it's as if you're sitting with a donor or a prospect and presenting a menu of options. And there again is the food analogy. Uh, because you don't know what's going to resonate with someone until you start to explore the options, until you sit down and essentially break bread together and explore the possibilities. And when, and when you're explaining that way in stories, you'll see what resonates with that particular donor. And it also makes it much more memorable. Early in the book, I quote Maya Angelou, and she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that is essentially what storytelling does. It makes people feel a certain way. And if you can get through with that connection, that uh, emotion to people and, and tr stoke their passion, it's far more effective than sitting down with an illustration of how a gift works and what the numbers look like. Help me understand what you actually mean by storytelling, because th this is not uh, an argument of short letters versus long letters in direct mail. This is more personal. This is more one-on-one, -on -one, is it not? Is, is that where stories, or, or is this a very broad topic that touches all aspects of, of, uh, of fundraising? I think it touches all aspects of fundraising, and that's why one of the chapters is called Variations on the Recipe, and another chapter is called The Side Dishes, because we live in a world now that is information overload, and I think that storytelling will run across the spectrum. So it'll be short stories in tweets and Instagram and Facebook and all of social media and letters, but then it's also on websites we can have the luxury of t sharing longer stories and going into mm -hmm. the details and providing a lot more in-depth content. Uh, and of course, then there's uh, a whole chapter in the book on presentations, because face-to-face -face in a presentation, whether it's to one person, 10 people, or 100 people at a big presentation, you're more effective in communicating your message if you're using storytelling. So I think storytelling is not just about gift planning. It's not just about major gifts. It's across-the-board fundraising, and it's an effective way to compete in this noisy world that we live in. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not really about the ask. It's about setting the stage or setting the table for the ask. Yes, in many ways it is. Um, and how we communicate with using a story about the impact that a gift could have may be the thing that resonates with somebody. It may be what stokes their passion and triggers them to think about a gift. Or they may see a story about another donor that made a gift and identify themselves and say, I can do that. That's what I would like to do. 
so it's a, it, it can also be a launching off point to a more personal exploration of possibilities by uh, maybe not making it um, so scary by talking about someone else's story or, or right. hearing about you're not the first, uh, others have succeeded going down this path. Yes, and what we want to do is not make the organization the most important part of the story. Uh, certainly there's, a, there's a, an element of being a hero. We don't want the organization to be the hero. We want our donors and our supporters to be the heroes. We want to focus on the audience that we're impacting, those that have benefited from our organization. If it's an educational institution, you know, at, like I am here at Penn, then it may be the scholarship recipients or in the area of Penn Medicine, the patients that have benefited from the research dollars. We want to focus on the impact of the gift and not on the organization itself when we share the stories. Boy, there's so much that is written and talked about uh, on the, the topic of, of impact and impact measurement. Uh, which of course can be done. It can be expensive. It can be very data driven. But you're you're talking about a, a much more intimate impact of of the effect on a life uh, or on a a program or series of of people that are that are impacted, which makes it all the more human, right? And that's one of the key ingredients in the chapters on what are the ingredients or what's the recipe for stories. Focusing on one person or a small group of people is a more effective way to tell a story because we tend to tune out when it's a large group, when it's presented as, for example, uh, uh, eliminating homelessness or feeding the hungry, and we present it as large numbers of people. As human beings, we tend to either tune out or say, well, there's no way we can fix that huge problem. But if we narrow the focus and we focus on feeding one people, one person or feeding 10 people, or we talk about eliminating homelessness in a small group or for one person, it makes the solution that much more palatable and the story that much more effective. Right. Uh, let's, uh, I want to take one step back, and then I actually do want to talk about um, – the ingredient, the ingredient, ingredients in this meal, um, but let's take a step back to the consent form, uh, which I just think is so powerful because, you know, e even if you think you know how to tell a good story, or you're convinced that storytelling is important in your fundraising, I think all too often uh, nonprofits miss the necessity of consent, that it isn't your story. It's someone else's story, and you need to have uh, consent. You need to have permission to be able to tell that story. Can you walk us through from, you know, from uh, a legal perspective but also uh, a good management perspective, what does a consent form cover? You have one in your book. Uh, I believe that's in Appendix B. Um, but why is that necessary? That's necessary because clearly we are very concerned, not just in the nonprofit world, obviously, but across the board with privacy. Privacy has become uh, quite an issue. It's why so often you know, social media is in the news because of privacy issues. Uh, there are issues you know, that were addressed with HIPAA laws for medicine. Privacy is a big concern, and we can't go down the path of sharing stories without being aware that we need to obtain permission to do so. So that's one of the tools I've included in the book because if uh, you're an organization that is contemplating becoming a, an organization that has a storytelling culture and you're going to increase your efforts to collect stories, there's also a story collection form in the appendix, there are the tools that you have to have in place in order to collect the stories, to have permission to share the stories, and really there are a number of tools to put into place to become a storytelling organization. So, so that's where you're, you're then moving into the culture. So is, is this an individual activity, you uh, at University of Pennsylvania, uh, or is this an institution of storytellers, and does it make a difference? It does make a difference, 
you know, obviously one step is to become an individual storyteller and become a more effective fundraiser individually. Uh, whether you're working with donors and you want to be more effective or you want to be more effective if you're presenting to your board of directors or you're presenting to um, groups uh, of potential fundraisers, all of those are ways that you can become more effective individually using storytelling, but the bigger picture and the more better impact is to become a storytelling culture. And there are organizations that are good examples where they don't necessarily have a big budget for marketing and communications, but if they become an organization that is a team of storytellers, then they're a more effective organization overall and can have a greater impact, not just in fundraising. Fundraising is important, but just as important as fundraising is engagement because the two go hand in hand, and it's not just about measuring the dollars. It's about measuring engagement. And when people are sharing stories, contributing to stories, and you have an organization that has a storytelling culture, that means more people are engaged. That translates very often to bigger dollars, bigger gifts, but the engagement is just as important as the fundraising. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, let, me, let me jump into you since you, you sort of you know, brought up this, this culture. You have a, a wonderful quote by Mother Teresa uh, in, in your book where she says, if I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. I will. And, and you go on and say that, that in storytelling, it's very important to have a story about one person, one family, one event. Why is that? That goes back to what I was saying earlier about how, as humans, it is our nature to disengage or turn away if the, the problem seems too big, if the problem, if there doesn't seem to be a solution, if the problem seems insurmountable. And that's exactly what Mother Teresa is saying there, is if we look at the masses, we think there is no way we're going to be able to raise enough money to fix this problem. We're just going to be chipping away at this forever and ever. But if we can focus on an individual or a family that we've made a difference with, then we're more likely to have a story that can resonate with the people we want to engage or we want to donate. And they're more likely to help us chip away at the problem. Mm -hmm. and, and in doing that, you, you were talking about the culture. I'm just trying to think of, you know, what are some of the ways that having a true culture of storytelling could benefit the actual storyteller? Because not everybody's comfortable. I mean, would you agree not everybody's comfortable being a storyteller? Well, I think everybody can be comfortable in some capacity. And I'm thinking specifically of um, board of directors, especially at smaller organizations. Very often one of the hurdles of being a board member is people are reluctant to ask for money. And they don't want to be the fundraiser. They don't want to be making calls or asking peers or colleagues or, you know, in their cohort for money. But they would be willing to share the story of why are they a board member, what is the organization doing, what impact are they having in the community as an organization. So they'd be willing to share that story, and in that way they'd be a storyteller. So there are all different okay. roles for storytellers. Some storytellers will be the ones that are comfortable standing in front of a room of 800 people and telling their story. But some people are only going to be comfortable sharing the story one-on-one. -on -one. But as an organization, we want to be sure that we're all on the same page about what is our story, what impact are we trying to have. I think that's important what you just said is that, you know, I mean, when you write a book and you, you think about – you know, Mother Teresa as a storyteller, uh, you, know, you as a storyteller. You know, I think for some people that can be intimidating because I, I don't necessarily think of myself as that sort of person. But when you put it in the context of just telling your own story, or some people might say give your own testimony for, you know, who are you? If you're a board member, if all you can do is tell the story of why you serve on the board, why did you join this board? What is it that you personally want? Well, that can become a very powerful story for someone to be able to relate to the organization because you're connected and they're maybe not or not connected in the same way. So I, does that 
speak to your your concept that everybody can and actually is a storyteller, you might not be able to be the sort of person that can learn a third party story and re you know impart that to others, but you can certainly always tell your own story. Right, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be to a big group. It might just be, you know, as I say, for one on one. And every time I close a gift with a donor, particularly if it's a gift that was directed to something in particular, if it was um, a gift for scholarship or a gift for cancer research or a gift, I closed a gift years ago with a woman who had come to Penn at a time when women were not equals on campus. There were buildings they weren't allowed in. They weren't necessarily treated fairly uh, as as female students, and this is, of course, many decades ago, so it wasn't just Penn. That was the norm at the time. But what she said to me as we talked about her gift is she had some hesitation because she harbored just a little bit of resentment over that treatment. And when we talked about the fact that there was a scholarship program here at Penn for women who were non-traditional students and that she could direct her gift specifically to that program, it was a light bulb moment, and she could really be passionate about making her gift if it was directed to that program. I can't tell you how many times we have used her story and she has told her story because she feels so good about the gift. And, and again, you're making it personal. You're, you're giving her an opportunity to see herself as part of that story as opposed to just her money going into a big pot of money that might make something happen, but she doesn't see her role in that. That's absolutely right. Uh, Lynn, we're gonna make, uh, we're gonna take a very quick break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, I want to um, take just a second to share a couple of versions of a story that I think you have outlined so nicely in your book to give people a, a, maybe a really good insight into what you mean by, uh, by storytelling, and we'll be right back. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? Well, we all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded, and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. And we are live here with uh, Lynn Malzone, IRRD, and her book, Storytelling, is our topic today. Uh, Lynn, before we went on the break, I promised to come back. I'm, I just want to share a couple of paragraphs here. So everybody uh, hang with me here because Lynn has a point to make at the end of my sharing these, uh, these, two, um, these two paragraphs. So story version number one is Petey is a yellow Labrador retriever who suffered unimaginable abuse. He was found chained to a fence and abandoned in West Philadelphia. To escape, he had apparently chewed his leg, and as a result, his leg is severely infected. Before PD can find a forever home, he will need surgery and expensive medical attention. With a gift today, you can help provide PD with medical care he needs. Can we count on your help? So that's, that's one story. Story number two is dogs are the most common victims of animal, animal abuse, accounting for 64.5% of 
of all documented cruelty cases that are media reporting. It's estimated that 6,000 dogs are abused every year. Before 1986, there were only four states that had laws against animal cruelty. More recently, continuous chaining of a dog has become illegal in some states because owners would never let their animal off the chain during their entire lives. About half of all dogs who wind up in shelters end up being euthanized. Your gift today can help us change these statistics. Lynn, over to you. I think those are two stories that really illustrate the difference between focusing on one person, one animal, one family, and the impact that a gift could have versus focusing on the bigger problem, focusing on a large audience where the problem may seem unsolvable. And it also focuses on uh, how effective your gift can be in making a difference. Again, you know, I want to put my money where it's going to make a difference, make a change. And we fall into the trap sometimes of thinking that the statistics are going to be more persuasive, that if we throw out the numbers, show graphs, that that's going to be a persuasive argument. And as a lawyer, I see the logic in that. But as a fundraiser, I know that the more effective way to, to caution a donor is to talk about the impact of one thing, one person, and tell the story. Well, and I think it goes back to something you were talking about before the, the break, um, and that is in the first story, you can identify with a dog, Petey. You can, you can sense the pain that he felt, and you can also see that, well, maybe my money could make a difference with one dog. Whereas in the second story, you certainly are going to agree this is a big problem. And there are a lot of animals out there. But can I really make a difference with my gift? Right. 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 And a story will trump a story will trump statistics each and every time. So why do so many nonprofits focus on the statistics? and don't get to the story? I think it's easier. I think it's, in some ways, it takes being more strategic to tell stories. I think we are reluctant or we don't know what the key ingredients are of a good story, and we fall back on thinking statistics will, will do the job when they won't. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. And I think that it takes constant attention to be a storytelling culture. Um, it's more effective, but I think we fall into the trap of citing statistics thinking that would be effective. And, and it's, I mean, some organizations are effective in telling those stories that are focused on statistics. So are you saying uh, they're actually, they're very likely leaving money on the table. They're very likely leaving donors unimpressed you can raise money but not necessarily meet your potential. That's true. And I think there's certainly a place for statistics. Uh, there are donors uh, that are anxious to have that information and they'll ask for it. But I think I agree with you. I think that there are organizations leaving money on the table if they're only using statistics and not telling stories. Um, and there are organizations that don't have significant budgets that are effective because they're doing a great job with telling good stories. It, it, when you think of statistics and data, you might think of technology or high tech and, and certainly someone, you know, in our lifetime who, uh, you know, has a, you know, a, a place in, in the hall of fame uh, for high tech would be Steve Jobs uh, and his company, Apple. Uh, however, one of his more famous quotes, is the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. Mm -hmm. So why is it not the, the tech wizard? Why is it not, you know, uh, someone, you know, who, who has a new, you know, gee whiz kind of, uh, of equipment? Um, he was known for making technology more personal and, and making you feel like you can be the master of something that's way more complicated than you've ever 
had in your hand before. So how, how is it that someone like that turns storytelling into technology success, whereas most people, as we're just talking about, get stuck on the data? He was a terrific storyteller. If you look back on YouTube and elsewhere at the uh, announcements when they would come out with a new product, the way he presented stories was in many ways the, some of the ingredients that are outlined in my book, you know, catching them at the beginning, you know, trying to include emotion, building up, um, including a, a, an example of how things are now but how they could be. Uh, he was an, a terrific storyteller. And along the same lines, um, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, um, in his meetings for, at Amazon, they do not allow PowerPoints. They require a written narrative at their meetings. And they spend the first part of the meeting reading the narratives because his opinion or his point of view is that you're far more effective when you have to think through and write and edit a narrative versus a PowerPoint, and that bullets on a PowerPoint or PowerPoint slide are ineffective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because you are weaving the story when you have to wordsmith the complete thought as opposed to just leaving data points. Right, right. And the our brains respond to the narrative. Um, one of the um, one of the people that I learned a lot from in writing the book was um, Paul Zak is a neuroscientist out in California, and he's done a lot of work um, and research on the brain and the oxytocin that the brain produces. Uh, and they've studied this using MRIs and so forth, how the body responds to stories and how we respond to narrative as opposed to the bullet points of a PowerPoint slide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, there's a, there's a, a, a part in your, in your book that I just feel has to be said, and I'm so glad that you've written this down because it's, it's one of those things that for most fortunate fundraisers who have good mentors and, and work in and good, well-organized uh, uh, nonprofit organizations, I think you just pick up on this, but I, I don't know if I've ever actually had somebody come right out and say, as you do, every organization has an origin story. Are you familiar with yours? Do your board members know that story? And, and, and I love that you're saying that because those are the sorts of things, like much of storytelling, that tends to get passed down from generation to generation, from employee to employee. But how often does someone actually say to a new employee, you should know our origin story? It's something that you learn, that you pick up, and you're expected to understand. But you're saying it matters. It absolutely matters because that's at the heart of why does your organization exist? What was the purpose? of founding your organization and building an organization, you know, your mission was probably created either along the way or soon after your origin story, but there was a reason that triggered the birth, so to speak, of your organization. And sometimes going back to what is that origin story also illustrates how have we changed or morphed or adapted over the years. The story in the book about the March of Dimes is a great illustration of that because the March of Dimes was Tell founded. Share that story. Yes, share the that March story. of Dimes was founded because polio was such an uh, obviously a significant issue, and then when a, when the polio vaccine uh, and by Jonas Salk was you know con- invented by Jonas Salk and basically eradicated or you know came close to and then over time eradicated polio. The March of Dimes really had to take a step back and say, okay, why do we exist now? What are we going to do next? Are we going to close our doors and declare success, or are we going to adapt and do something more or something else? And the March of Dimes has done that over the years more than once, and their story is really a great illustration of how, as an organization, going back and looking at your origin story is important, and so is how has that story changed over time? Mm-hmm. And, and you just mentioned, because I think some people can get confused by this, 
you say that your mission isn't your story. And don't make the mistake of just listing accomplishments and saying that's your story. It's, it's, is it more about sort of that evolution, the evolution of the story going back to the founding? Yes, and it's, and it's also about what does, what does the future hold? So an organization who simply points to their mission isn't conveying the story of here's here, where we are now, here's where we were, here's where we started, here's where we are now, and here's where we could be. This is the impact your donation, your engagement, your support could have because with your support, we could be there. And that's where we want to end up. So if we sit on the mission and say, this is why we exist, it doesn't tell that story. Right. Yeah, and, and, I, and I guess that's the difference between, you know, the narrative and the PowerPoint, right? That, that you know, you need the story, and, and in the story there are, there are actors. There are actual people who did things, and when they did those things, there were outcomes. And, and then we're here today. Right. And, it, and it, uh, the story captures one of the most important elements of the story, and that is emotion. Uh, a PowerPoint and a list of bullets and even the mission really doesn't capture any emotion. It doesn't have any drama. And that's what makes a story. Drama, emotion, vivid, vivid colors, vivid examples, vivid examples. Uh, all of those things are what makes a story good. It's what makes a story have that physical response in the listener. Gerald Panis uh, said in uh, uh, his book, Asking, and you quote this in, in uh, your book, uh, that uh, you won't get milk from a cow by sending a letter. You won't get milk by calling on the phone. The only way to get milk from a cow is to sit by its side and milk it. Uh, help us understand how that fits into the overall concept of storytelling. And in storytelling, the, the title of his book was Asking. Right. Uh, and I have remembered that quote for, I think it's 25 years now, now that he, I first heard that quote in the mid-1990s. And uh, in my profession, I've always thought of that quote when I think about face-to-face -face visits. I can sit at my desk and I can make phone calls and I can send emails and I've closed many gifts with donors over the phone or via email, uh, but uh, the face-to-face -face visits with donors, with prospects, are very often where I learn the most about a donor. What are they interested in? What are their passions? What are their concerns? Are they concerned about their children and grandchildren? Are they concerned about supporting a spouse? Uh, what are their concerns? And that gives me a much better sense of the big picture and where their philanthropy fits in that big picture. And I think the same is true of storytelling. I can tell a story over the phone. I can tell a story in a letter, in email, but perhaps and, and we should be doing that. I'm not discounting those ways of telling stories because I think we should be telling stories in every channel that we can. But the face-to-face -face story is perhaps the most effective. When I can see how somebody is responding to the conversation, when I can see their body language, when I can make eye contact, I can be more effective face-to-face -face than I can on the phone. I'd like to um, uh, take a little bit of a, of a different approach here uh, in the time that we have left, or about 12 minutes left. And I'd like to, with your permission, do a little bit of role play if we could. Sure. Uh, I'm the donor. I, I'm the donor. Uh, you're the expert fundraiser. We are in the middle of a conversation, and I say, I'd like to give more, but. And that but is meant to be I'm not going to say yes, I'm not going to because of whatever reason. Take over as a skilled fundraiser, and how do you get me to yes, and how do you get me to that gift? What story are you going to tell? It's funny that you use that example because I literally have used that in presentations over the years many, many times to say that is a clue. 
when somebody says I'd like to give but, or I'd like to give more but, what that tells me as a fundraiser is that they're philanthropic, but there is a, some sort of hurdle to getting them to yes. And the philanthropic part is the hardest part because I can tell you about tax benefits or any number of other things that won't convince you to make a gift if you're not philanthropic. So if you're telling me I'd like to give but, you're already telling me you're philanthropic. So what I would explore with you if you said that to me as a donor or a prospect is to explore with you what came after the word but. Tell me more about that. Share with me why you feel that way. What, what's a story that you might tell? What's one of your, your favorite University of Pennsylvania stories that helps give context to where I might go with that but? Well, the scholarship stories are often my favorites because that really is, is so indicative of the impact that the university can have on students or potential students. When we hear stories from students that have been impacted by their financial aid packages and they are in a place that they never would have been without those dollars. Um, there's one in the book, there's a story in the book about a, a student who came from a part of the world that doesn't even show up on Google Maps. Uh, they don't have paved roads, they don't have indoor plumbing. Um, and he was able to come to the University of Pennsylvania because of his scholarship. He was able to do internships and make contacts and gain experiences as a student that in his wildest dreams he never would have imagined in the village that he came from. And those scholarships are made possible by donations and gifts of all sizes. Sometimes donors come in and they do a scholarship, you know, named scholarship that's endowed and will last forever and ever by themselves. But there are many other cases where donors make smaller gifts that go into this scholarship pool. And by pooling the gifts, they can have an impact and, and have an impact on a student like this. So I would share that story, and I have shared that story many, very often for example, when a donor says, I can't afford to make a gift that would provide a scholarship to a student. Uh, I provide the example of a story where the gifts are pooled, and as the, in that way they can help a student. So that would be an example of, a, of a, an impact. I would choose a particular student or a particular story where it had an impact. And, and help people see themselves in that story or to see how other individuals um, were in that story so that you can place yourself? Is that, is that part of it? It's making what can appear to be impossible more approachable? Yes, absolutely. And in, with the benefit of gift planning tools, techniques like trusts and gift annuities, very often those provide solutions when somebody says, I'd like to give more but. If the, what comes mm -hmm. after the but is something like, I'm, I want to be sure my spouse has enough should something happen to me. Or mm -hmm. what if I need the money after I retire? And well, there may be tools that can accomplish both. You might be able to make a gift and also receive an income back. Um, and when I can learn from people you know, about their assets and their resources, they may have an asset that could fund a gift annuity and then they would get an income stream back for the rest of their life and that solves the but problem that you're describing. I'd like right. to give more but. So right. gift plan and so that's part gift planning of, part of really. That, yeah. So part of that is, you know, I, I hear you, so it's also being a good listener is, is being a good storyteller. Um, let me share a story of, you know, Sam, uh, who I had the pleasure of getting to know who had a similar issue, or you know of a story of someone, and, and sort of start with, we were able to do this, but let me tell you how we got there. Uh, yes. Melinda Gates says, and you quote in, in your book, I believe in the power of storytelling. Stories open our hearts to a new place, which opens our minds, which often leads to action. So it's, it's, it's taking us on a journey, right, that, that we didn't think we could take. Right, right. 
Uh, I worked with a donor who was um, supportive of the veterinary school here at Penn, and their concern was uh, that they, they were a gay couple, and they were concerned about, well, we'd like to support animals and the research in animals, but we've been um, supporters of gay rights issues, and so we feel a little bit conflicted about which should be our primary philanthropy. Uh, and we were able to, you know, talk through with them ways that they could support both. Um, in that case, they ended up supporting um, research that would provide support for the Working Dog Center and research onto cancer in animals and research that would support animals that might have a connection to the LGBT Center. And we were able to tie all of that together because we really heard their story. We listened to what they were passionate about and were there ways that we could tie that all together. And it's only by listening, which I think is, is such a, an, an important part of getting to tell the story. You know, I, I once was part of a, a very large cancer center campaign. This was, uh, you know, campus-wide. It was priority. Uh, it was a lot of money that needed to be raised. And so, you know, the call went out across campus that we're really looking for all donors, uh, all major donors, um, to be part of this because it was a realization that it was going to take that much support. Uh, and I had a donor that I had been talking to who was very loyal to the organization and certainly wanted to be supportive of anything that was a priority of the institution. But in talking to that person, you know, they thought cancer was important, but, it, you know, it wasn't their primary thing. They could see why the center would be very successful, and, and certainly if the institution said that's the priority, they wanted to be there for the institution. But there was something that I heard in one of the meetings that we had that, first of all, um, his mother was extremely consequential to his life. Um, and in, in asking him to tell a little bit more about his mother, um, he then shared how, you know, almost everything about his memories of his mother had to do with her love of music. And mm. that led to a much larger gift, a very inspired gift uh, from this gentleman to the music therapy uh, program in honor of his mother that was far larger than he would have given to the cancer center and far more consequential to him as a philanthropist. But if I were strictly doing what I was told to do, I would have directed him to give to the cancer center. Right. And in that case, you were being a story listener, and that's just as important as being the storyteller. You listened to what he was passionate about and peeled back the onion to learn what would resonate most with him. And I think that's really an effective way to be a fundraiser is to, to be both a storyteller and a story listener. And they're both skills that we can work on. Uh, one of the my hopes for the book is that I'll get out now and be speaking about the book, but I'm building workshops so that in addition to speaking about it, I can work with people that they can roll up their sleeves and really practice the skills of story listening and storytelling so that they can gather, create, and then share stories. And part of the gathering is being a listener. We only have a couple of minutes left, but before we, we leave, I, I, there are so many reasons why people should buy uh, your book, Storytelling, but one of them is the must-have, in my opinion, Storytelling Culture Self-Assessment Tool. Uh, can you uh, wrap us up today by telling us just briefly what that is and why it's so powerful, and then uh, wrap up by letting uh, our listeners know how they can reach you? Sure. The Storytelling Culture Assessment Tool is something that I did not invent or create. It's something that I discovered in a project that was part of a foundation white paper. Uh, the project was called Stories Worth Telling. And there were they have a number of tools available, but the, my favorite was the Storytelling Culture Assessment Tool because it goes through a checklist that outlines the various pieces of mindset and appreciation and then capacity for your organization. So that if you're looking back, and not, a, not as an individual, but as your organization, how are we doing at this? 
And you might be surprised to figure out that you think you're doing a great job with storytelling, but there are ways that do opportunities for improvement. And that tool is an effective way to evaluate how are we doing in storytelling and where can we perhaps have better results. Well, very much worth giving the book. How can our listeners uh, reach you directly? They can reach me by email at lynnirardi at comcast.net. They can also reach me via my consulting website, which is giftplanningadvisor.com. And I'm pretty easy to find if you Google my name. Terrific. Well, Lynn Melzone, IRRD, thank you so much for bringing us the book Storytelling, and thank you for being my guest here today on the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Thanks, Ted. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.